Well, we're at sermon number 30 today in our Suggested Topics sermon series. And this is number 10 of 14 in the category of Christian living. And the topic that I was asked to preach from today is, what is spiritual warfare? The person who asked this question comes from a background where spiritual warfare was looked at in what we might say a very narrow way, pretty much restricted to things like you know, rebuking demons or casting out demons or things like that, and not looking at the broader uh, picture of spiritual warfare. So I will endeavor with God's help to look at all the main aspects of spiritual warfare. This will be, you know, quite a, a summary kind of teaching here. But uh, there are different aspects and components of fighting the good fight of faith, and, and we'll be looking at that today. So our scripture reading for this, besides the Old Testament reading we already had, is Ephesians 6 and verses 10 through verse 20. So I'll be reading that to you now. This is the Word of God, Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with the truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that, it, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And there we'll end the reading of God's holy and precious word. So as a Christian, you're called here to arm yourself for spiritual warfare. That's what this is really all about here. You know, how did the war get started? I mean, what are, what are we talking about? What are we fighting here? Well, it was, of course, rebellion against God that Satan initiated that brought about this warfare. You know what happened. Satan, the angel that led the rebellion in heaven that some of the angels joined, came to our first parents before they'd even had time to conceive a child and they weren't barren. <laughs> uh, they, it wasn't like it would have taken them a long time. And uh, he came in the form of a serpent. Revelation twelve nine describes him as that great dragon, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. So he may have been uh, as a dragon, like a flying serpent as it would be called in, uh, in the garden. And then, of course, he got a, lost his wings and had to crawl on the ground. You don't know exactly in that, but uh, he's, he's a dragon, he's a serpent, he's Satan, he's the devil. All of those, Revelation brings that together. So he approaches Eve 
the mother of us all, and to make a long story short, told her that she'd be better off if she made her own decisions instead of obeying God. And you decide what's right with you. You be as God. You be like God. And you decide if I want to eat that fruit or if I don't want to eat that fruit. Why should God tell you that? She was deceived by this and took the forbidden fruit, declaring her independence from God's rule. Adam, though not deceived, joined her in the rebellion. He should have asked God to have mercy on his wife and have, if necessary, even been willing to bear her penalty for her the way the greater Adam did when he came. But uh, he did not do that. He joined her in the rebellion. I guess he didn't want to be bothered with that, perhaps. But since Adam was appointed to represent us all, because all people come from him, then when Adam rebelled, the whole world rebelled. There were no other people yet, but since they would all come from Adam, then they would all come out as little rebels, who would be um, little rebels that would grow up to be big rebels, and uh, enlisted in the rebellion from their conception, so that David says, and he's looking at his own sin that he committed even later, years later, when he was following the Lord overall. But he said um, in Psalm 51, 5, after he had committed a great sin of his own birth and conception, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So the conflict with God Almighty, of course, was utterly hopeless. There was no way that the human race would be able to overthrow their creator or that the angels would be able to overthrow, the rebellious angels would be able to overthrow their creator. It does not go well for creatures to strive with their maker. God immediately sentenced us with death. And of course, he's appointed the angels to everlasting uh, condemnation and prepared a place for them that he also sentenced us to go as well in our rebellion. The world which had been a paradise became a place of conflict, so that there was war. There was conflict even with nature itself. Sickness, storms, conflicts with beasts, contention with each other, and ultimately death. The dissolution of our bodies returned to dust, and after that, eternal punishment in the pit of hell. God would have been perfectly just if He had left us all to perish in that estate or condition of sin and misery. If he had, we could have done absolutely nothing to change or rectify anything. We would have just all perished. But God did not leave us to perish in our sin and misery. Almost as soon as we rebelled, he also declared that he would separate out a people for himself who would oppose Satan and the rebellion that Satan introduced. So the whole human race was united in that rebellion. Now there was going to be, as it were, an opposition party that was raised up to go against, to come back to God and go against Satan and the rebellion that he started. He called these people the woman's seed and declared that he himself would turn their hearts against Satan and those who are in rebellion that he would put enmity or, or conflict between them. He was going to change a people so that they were going in opposite directions, for God or against God. God further declared that he would bring forth an individual from the seed of the woman who would, after a conflict, 
defeat Satan, casting him and all his followers at last into the lake of fire. This, of course, was the gospel of Jesus Christ that was proclaimed, the good news of salvation for sinners accomplished by God through His only begotten Son. Those who are chosen to turn from the rebellion are transformed from the heart by the Spirit of God so that they repent and enlist themselves in service to God under Jesus Christ as Lord. He promised to provide atonement for their sins, someone to pay sin's penalty for them. And now, in the fullness of time, when he sent Christ forth 2,000 years ago, then he has, through the cross, provided that for his people. By saving people out of the rebellion, God actually created the warfare in which we are now engaged. Because we'd all been united with Satan. Now, of course, they're going to fight with each other. The world's going to fight with themselves, too. But there was this fundamental conflict that was established by God pulling a people out and rescuing them to be his own people. That's where the spiritual battle comes from. It's, uh, it's us against them, as it were. By saving people out of rebellion, God created this. Jesus, God's son, pointed that out as far as his own ministry was concerned when he came into the world. And he said in Matthew 10, 34 through 39, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And we know that there were people in Jesus' day that wanted to take up a literal physical sword and go and fight. What is Jesus talking about? He's saying, I'm calling people out to serve God. I'm gathering people and bringing them out by my grace to be with God and to serve Him. And this is going to create a conflict between them and the people who are still committed to rebellion and Satan. He says, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So if you're still committed to those who are in rebellion against him so that you don't serve God, then he's saying, you're, you, you know, you're, not, you're, not, you're not one of mine. He says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So we lose our life, the life that we were in of rebellion against God under Satan, and we find our life in coming to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and serving him. But we're on opposite sides. It separates families. It separates, it brings conflict. So it is that now in the world, there is then a desperate conflict between the seed of the woman led by Jesus and the seed of the serpent led by Satan. Of course, when the ones in the rebellion are called Satan's seed, it does not mean that they are biological children of Satan. We, we all come from Adam, whichever way we are, but uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that any more than it means that we are Christ's biological offspring when we are said to be his seed. Christ didn't have any biological offspring in the world. He did not marry. They are the seed of Satan then as sons of rebellion. And we are the seed of Christ as sons of righteousness. That's how we are sons. Now I want to say right here from the outset that every one of you must choose whom you will serve. 
Like Joshua said, you know, that as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. You have to come down one way or another. Uh, if you would serve God, then you're called to look to Jesus Christ to save you. That is, you must ask him to save you and you must trust in him to do so. If you don't do that, then by default, you continue in the rebellion into which Adam brought us. Satan brought us. You are a sinner and you need Christ's atonement. You are rebellious and you need his spirit. You cannot save yourself. His call is, look to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. So if you hear this call, this call appeals to you. It calls you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to enlist in the side where he is Lord, leading us to God, rather than the side of continued rebellion against God. The nature of the battle, the war, is this. Satan and those who are committed to the rebellion against God, they do not want to serve God, but that's not all. They don't want you to serve God either, or anybody else. They don't want him to have dominion. Just like if you're in a political, uh, if you have people that are, you're, you have opposition with, with politics, you don't want people to follow the opposition leader. You want them to follow your leader. And that's the way it is in the conflict that we have here. Deep down inside, they know that they are fighting a losing battle. But they are so embittered against God that they will not look at that. They will not turn to Him. And they're adamantly opposed to anyone who does. There are different degrees of this opposition. Some of them are open and defiant. Some of them say that they're happy that it works for you. But if you get down to it, they are very uncomfortable that you're following Jesus. And sometimes they are the more dangerous kind of opposition. Because they play up to you and they're sweet about it. And uh, they would be very glad, though, if you did not continue to serve the Lord. And they are glad if you're not very zealous for the Lord. And so in a sweet way, they try to pull you down from serving the Lord as faithfully as you might. Their opposition comes in a more friendly way. You see, they encourage you not to be too zealous, not to overdo. We don't really need to believe that, they all say. You know, follow Christ with moderation, they all say. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, come and follow me with moderation. Is that what he said? He said, if you're half-hearted, that's about where you need to be. No, he didn't say that at all, did he? Many of them who follow him with moderation are actually those who are in rebellion against him. Because what is the following him with moderation? That means that as long as you agree with him, okay, you don't really want to kill anyone right now. There's no one you want to murder and you get along better in the world if you don't murder anybody. Oh yeah, you know, I agree, you shall not kill. Yeah, yeah, that's a good commandment. And you follow him. But then if something comes up that you don't want to do, then, oh no, I'm not going to do that. You know, something that you don't agree with. Jesus' true disciples are not those who follow him as long as they agree with what he says. True disciple is someone who recognizes that he is Lord and who follows him even when we don't like things that he said. Like, don't eat that fruit, right? That's how it started. 
Eating the fruit itself wasn't like a bad thing. But it's like, who's making the decision here? Who's Lord here? Satan says, You're, you, you make the decision. The Lord says, I make the decision. So what we have then is the kingdom of Satan in conflict with the kingdom of Christ. And the battle is relentless. Satan and his minions, his votaries, whatever you want to call them, whether angels or men, are trying to prevent people from following Christ. And Christ and his followers, whether angels or men, are calling people to come and be saved, to follow the Lord. When someone professes to come to Christ, we rejoice greatly. But we do not always know, of course, whether they're sincere, do we? We can't always tell. And Satan and his followers do not know who is sincere either. Sometimes they might get clues. Sometimes we might get clues. They will try to win all of us back, though, in whatever way they can. They will use every means that they can find. What's more, they are so unhappy about anyone following the Lord that even if they knew that you were sincere and they were convinced of it, they would still try to diminish your service. They would try to wear you down and get you not to serve God as fully as you might. They would try to to oppose you and would labor to dampen your love and your service for God and His Son. Ultimately, their efforts will fail. In fact, they often backfire on them and they end up making you stronger, stronger. But there are times when they will have success in hindering you, confusing you, and leading you astray. And we've all had that. We've had someone to influence us and pull us away from serving the Lord as much as we were. Now you can see why this passage urges us then to arm ourselves for the battle. We are engaged in a relentless conflict. It begins by saying, verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Notice the call here. Does it say, be strong in yourself? You are strong and you can win. No, it tells you to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Pride is fatal in this battle because the very nature of the battle is that we've come to God to serve Him. And if we're serving Him in our own strength, we're not recognizing He's God and we need His grace. Whenever you think you can handle the battle on your own, if you're His child, then the Lord will graciously humble you. (laughs) He will make you fail. And uh, he'll leave you for a little while to your own strength to remind you how strong your own strength is, <laughs> that it's not very long, very strong. The Bible tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So you need God's help because, as it says in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, sometimes when Christians read that, they'll they'll be confused because in this passage, it sounds like that we don't have a conflict with Satan's followers on earth. No, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You know, so with people of the world who follow Satan, that we don't have any conflict there. Yet, we read just a moment ago how Jesus himself said that he did not come to bring peace in the world, but actually to do things that would put you in opposition with members of your own household. Who are, not following, who, are, who are still following Satan. Yet the Bible often speaks about us in conflict with, and, and the Bible also often speaks about us in conflict with Satan's human followers. 
Isn't that where we actually usually see the battle face? Is with human followers of Satan, not, not with spiritual forces. In fact, it even speaks about us being at war with our own flesh. That's so close to us, right within our own members, that there is a war going on. The spirit against the flesh. Galatians 5.17, Paul says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So you see, it's a little bit confusing. Okay, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, and then Paul says, you've got this relentless battle with the flesh going on in your own body. We're like, wait, do I wrestle against flesh and blood, or do I not? And you're trying to sort that out. And, And you have to take it in the way that it is intended to be understood. It's not a contradiction. What's going on? The emphasis here is about how much we need to rely on the Lord. The emphasis is that we dare not rely on our own strength because the forces we are contending with are not mere flesh and blood. Not that there's never a battle even with our own flesh, but it's not merely flesh and blood that we're wrestling against. We're contending with powers that are much greater than that. Satan and his mighty angels are leading the way. And so, what, what's more, we are not just fighting over land or such things as that in the world. But let me add to that. We're not just doing that. Sometimes that can be part of the battle. For example, if there is a Christian republic that is being attacked by an enemy nation, but ultimately the battle, of course, is for our souls, but it means that an individual who is being, being tortured for her faith and remains allegiant to the Lord has just as great, if not greater, a victory for the Lord than a group of men who courageously defend their nation from attack against, of enemies that would set up, come among their people, set up false gods and idolatry. So you see, there may be men taking up arms physically in fighting the Lord's battle to defend their, their city or their, uh, their nation when it's being attacked by those who would bring in idolatry. But the individual, there's a battle for the soul. They have also a victory even if they get executed and killed in continuing to serve the Lord and they're killed for their faith. So, so those courageous men who defended their people for the Lord were also victorious in the Lord if they did it for Him and drew their courage and strength from Him. It also means in an entirely different situation that the individual whom Satan afflicts the way Job was afflicted with the ruin of his estate, with the bereavement of his children, with the loss of his physical health, and who continues to praise God has had a wonderful victory. Say, a wonderful victory? His children died. He lost his estate and his health is broken. Yes, he had a wonderful victory because the battle is not fundamentally physical, but it's over our soul. It it, it involves physical, but it can involve that. So we don't say it's not at all. The person has stood in battle even though he is sick and in his bed and has lost everything that he had in the world. And then there is the person who is enticed. This is another aspect of the battle, say by a seducer, but who draws on the strength of the Lord and does not give way to the temptation. That person has also been victorious in the battle for the Lord. 
So it could be a group of men defending their city from those that are going to come and invade and introduce idols physically. Or it could be someone uh, that, that is afflicted with all kinds of sickness and things like that that continues to serve the Lord. Or it could be someone that is enticed to, and tempted into an affair or something like that that stands firmly. The same could be said about a person who is tempted by a promotion that would cause them to em- employ deception or, uh, and, and they refuse. The temptation in this case is from the world. It's from flesh and blood. It's for more material gain. But the battle, you see, is over the soul. So uh, the world in that case is acting as Satan's agent. So the emphasis here is that if we're going to stand in the battles that come in this world, we will need to rely on the Lord because we're fighting against forces that are beyond our strength. That's why it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against more than that, is what it's saying. It lists off all these principalities and powers. It's emphasizing that it's a great conflict. You better rely on the Lord. The entire passage tells you how to go about relying on the Lord. Verse 11 sums up how to do it. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Before we look at the armor, you need to see what the armor is all about. It's about one thing. What is the armor about? It's about relying on the Lord. That's what the armor is about. The different pieces of armor are different ways of relying on the Lord. But it's all relying on the Lord. That's what it's about. You put it on by relying on Him for the battle. We will get to the specific pieces in a moment. But first, let's look at the nature of the armor. The armor is obviously allegorical. You would be an idiot if you read this passage and you went out and you went shopping for a sword and a spear and you said, okay, I got my armor now. You know, obviously, this is allegorical. Satan is not allegorical. He is a living being, a fallen angel who leads the rebellion. But the armor is allegorical. These are used to symbolize spiritual armor that is relying on the Lord. That's what the spiritual armor is. Second, the armor is the armor of God. That means that it's not armor that you came up with. This is very important. I have seen Christians uh, using methods of pagan white magic to ward off demons or something like that. I knew of some who sprinkled some kind of whiffle dust or something on the threshold of their door to keep demons from, from gaining entry into the house. Or ones that walked along around a farm putting up a spiritual barrier by praying to protect someone's cattle, you know, that kind of thing. The prayer was fine, okay? Prayer, that was a good thing to do. But the Bible does not tell us to create spiritual force fields. Now, what's that superhero, that girl that makes a bubble around herself or whatever? You know, is that, that, something like that. That's not what we're told to do in the Bible. That practice was borrowed from elsewhere. Some of these things come right out of paganism. You've got black magic, white magic, this kind of stuff, and they draw on those resources. Oh, you get powder and this kind of powder, and it will keep these guys out. Or all this kind of stuff that they'll use. But it's not in the Bible, is it? Another example would be the, the false armor... T- Completely different type of now we're coming over into a rationalism thing it would be like with uh, psychology 
For example, when you try to help your children when they're discouraged, and you say, oh, my, my child is discouraged and they're giving up, I've got to build up their self-esteem. Now, where does the Bible say that? Is that, is that biblical? They don't need self-esteem. They need to esteem the Lord. They need to see that He's worthy of service, that He's the valuable one. And they, will, they, they are beat down because they've lost sight of Him. We find our strength in the Lord, not in looking at how good we are and how valuable we are and how worthy we are and how capable we are. It's in looking to Him. We won't find any hope if we look inside at ourselves. You are to deny yourself, the Bible says, and follow Him. This is something that came about, we really got popular in the, um, in the 1970s, especially. There. Everyone was talking about self-esteem, self-esteem. And then it got into Sunday school classes. I don't know how it made its way into the church. But uh, if you ever want to read a book about that, uh, I'd recommend uh, Jay Adams' book, Biblical View of um, Self-Love, Self-Esteem. I don't remember the order, but something like that. But your, your life will be transformed when you see who the Lord is and how important He is and how all of your service should be for Him. And then whatever you have, you a little bit or a lot, it's for Him. He's the Lord. The point is we need to be sure the overall point here, we need to be sure that we use armor that the Lord told us to use. You don't make this armor up. It's the armor that He gave you to use, not what you come up with in your own imagination. Notice also that you're to keep the armor on so that you will have it when you need it. Now, of course, we might accurately say that we always need the armor, right? I mean, we always need to rely on the Lord, and that's true. But It's important to consider what verse 13 says. It talks about something called the evil day. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And so this teaches something. Yes, you need the armor all the time, but the evil day is a time when Satan and his minions launch an attack that is aimed at disrupting your walk with the Lord in some way. Satan complained that God had protected Job. And he had. He wouldn't let Satan mess with him. He, he, he'd, put a, he'd put a shield around Job. And uh, he protected him from his attacks. And of course, God, God had done that. Satan cannot do a thing but what the Lord permits. So we're not constantly under the same level of attack. Certainly not always to the same degree. We're only attacked in a very heavy way when God purposes it and permits it. The point is that you need to cultivate and maintain a life of reliance on the Lord so that when the evil day comes, you will be ready to stand. When you would, maybe, you're, maybe you're standing okay, but what's going to happen when the severe attack comes? Jesus was, in a sense, preparing for the cross over his entire life. He committed, he continued to trust in the Lord all of his life. And when the heavy battle came, he stood strong in the Lord, not in his own strength, even even as the son of man, that he was he was a human being and he had to rely on the Lord, his God. Now I want to turn to the individual pieces of armor. I told you we would do that. Remember, again, the armor refers to different ways in which you are to trust the Lord different aspects of our reliance on Him in the battle for our souls. As Jesus told Peter, 
Satan wants to have you. And as God told Cain, the same thing about sin, Genesis 4, 7. Sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. Sin wants to control you. It wants to have you. Satan wants to have you. He wants to control you. He wants you enlisted in the rebellion that he has initiated. This is true of the world, and this is true of your own flesh. This is true of the devil. So let's look at the armor that we put on to protect ourselves in this battle. We will consider what each piece is and how each piece helps. First, there is the belt of truth. Verse 14, having girded your waist with truth. God has revealed to us his truth, both in nature and in our consciences, even more fully, but even more fully in his word. We know of his eternal power and divine nature by looking at the creation itself. We know of his displeasure with our sin by our consciences, which bear witness that we have done wrong. And by seeing the curse upon the earth that at last brings us all to the grave. We have that constant witness of creation and nature. In his word, God has reinforced what we know from nature. He spelled it out with plain words. He has clarified his moral law. He has told us of his displeasure with our sin and of of what its penalty is. He has told us of his curse and of how we fell out with him. But even more importantly, he has shown us his will for our salvation. That only through faith in Christ can an individual be reconciled to God. That only the Holy Spirit can transform us. That God will receive all of those who trust in him. Christ will receive all who trust in him for salvation and that we will at last be brought to glory. He's revealed all that to us. That's the truth, right? You've got truth. Satan and his minions want to keep you from the truth any way they can. They want to confuse you and twist the truth just the way Satan did with Adam and Eve. They look for weaknesses in us. They sow seeds of error so that we will believe a lie. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. Okay, he said he's a liar from the beginning and he's the father of lies. Satan wants to discourage you also from reading God's word. Because what will you be doing? You'll be feeding on the truth. And so you ever find it hard to read God's word? There's opposition to that. And when you read it, he wants to distract you. He wants you to go away and quickly forget what you read. He wants to keep you away from that. This means that effort is required on your part. We're talking about putting on the armor? Talking about depending on God? Do you just sit around and depend on Him? No, effort. You have to expend yourself to put the armor on. You have to work hard to pay attention at church to the preaching of the Word. To be consistent in family worship, leading your home and looking into the, the, the Word of God. To learn the basic teachings of our faith summarized in our catechism, you have to work at that. Doesn't it just come naturally by osmosis? To ha- you need to have meaningful personal Bible study where you engage with the truth, where you think about the truth and how it applies. Parents, do your children know the stories of the Bible? They should know the story. They should be able to tell you all about Jehoshaphat or or Moses or or, or whoever. Do they know their catechisms? Do they know what justification is? Do they know what adoption is? Do they know what it means to um, obey the third commandment? You know, what about these things? They're given to us in the Word. If you, 
if you don't teach them, then how are they going to get this? You need to put on the belt of truth. You need to put it on yourself, but you also need to see that your children put it on. And the elders of the church, we need to see that our church and the families in our church and the individuals in our church put on the belt of truth, that they know the truth and they walk in the truth. Did Paul not say earlier in Ephesians that one of our goals is, 4.13, to all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? He's talking about knowledge. It's not some kind of weird kind of knowledge. He's talking about knowing who Christ is, what he did, what he expects of us, what his commandments are, because he says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. You will not be able to stand in the evil day if you don't expend energy to put on the belt of truth. Do you see how essential it is? People will come with all kinds of lies. You will meet people with all kinds of deception. Some of them will be well, their lives will be put well put together. They can be errors about Christ, errors about his ordinances, errors about the way of salvation, errors about God's commandments. The list goes on and on and on. You need to know what his word says and you need to continue in it. Bind, bind it on you like a belt. It's a belt of truth. The second piece of armor listed is the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness refers to our right standing with God. Now, there's sometimes a debate about exactly how this is. I'm going to give it to you in a very general way because I think these things are meant to be taken in a general way. So righteousness refers to what? Our right standing with God, right? That's what righteousness is, right standing with God, rightness with God. And it has two components for us as Christians. Since we are all sinners in Adam, we are unable to be righteous because we have the guilt of original sin and all the sins that we've committed, and there's nothing we can do to to rectify that. We're all guilty and condemned unless, what? We rely on Jesus Christ, the one who came, the only one who had perfect righteousness so that he was able to establish a righteous kingdom for God and the one who also died on the cross to atone for our sins so that we could be pardoned and could enter that righteous kingdom that he established. He atoned for our sins so that we would no longer have any sin standing between us and God if we trust in him. That's justification that makes us righteous. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That is essential as part of the breastplate that you wear, that you have that righteousness. But there's another aspect of righteousness. The second component has to do with how we live as those who are justified. Are we maintaining a good conscience? Do you you deal with your sin? Do you ask those that you have sinned against to forgive you when you have sinned? Do you ask God to forgive you when you have sinned? Do you or you do just brush it off? Are there sins that you're holding on to? And refusing to address that you know you need to, then you've got a guilty conscience. And as you come before, as you come into the battle, your shield is broken and you're not going to be able to stand. It can be broken because you're not justified. It can be broken because you're not dealing with your sin. 
You see, you're not right with God as his child. You, you've, you've, you're, you're in rebellion against him. You're, you're not pursuing godliness. Satan is called the devil. Diabolos in Greek, which means what? Accuser. One of his chief ploys is to drive a wedge between God and his people. To, to do that, one of his chief ploys to do that is uh, to accuse us and slander us. To tell us, you're completely unacceptable to God. Just look at what a mess you are, he says. That God is surely opposed to us, he would tell us. And that there is nothing that you can do to change that. Look at all your sins. How can you think that God will listen to someone like you, Satan will say. You have no interest in God. You've got no business coming to God. Who do you think you are? When you have the breastplate of righteousness on, what happens? It means that you're resting in Christ for your, for your justification, your righteousness, not your own merit. And it means also that you're maintaining a good conscience. What I talked about before, you're, you're confessing your sin, you're serving the Lord with a good conscience. When that is the case, you can tell Satan, first of all, Satan, I am a lot worse than you have said. I'm worse than you. I am completely and utterly unacceptable to God apart from my gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. But He has graciously provided a Savior for me who is perfectly capable of making me righteous. And you can tell Satan that now that God has made you His child, you are living for Him. See, this is the other part. Satan, whatever you say, I'm following the Lord now. And your conscience is clear because you've confessed all of your known sins. And he can try to accuse you and talk about how you come short. And you say, no, I am sincerely following Jesus Christ. Think about that second aspect. Sometimes we have a little bit of trouble with that. We say, oh, I really should never say that. Should you not? What about Job? What happened with Job? Job was certainly justified. We know that he offered sacrifices to God for sins that you know, had been committed and things like that. But what else did Job do? When his friends accused him, they said, Job, there were, there were Satan, you see. Like, there, were, there were voices of Satan. Job, you've done something really bad. That's why all this stuff happened to you. Job said, no, I, I've been serving the Lord. I, I don't know of anything that I've done against the Lord. And I, I, I don't know of anything now that I, I, I'm looking I, I'm looking at. Oh, no, 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 you've done something, Job. You've, you've definitely done. And he hadn't. He was serving. He had a good conscience. And you need to defend that by Satan. You overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, right? And by the word of your testimony that, that you were faithful unto death in serving the Lord. And, of course, you sin. And when you sin, that you repented of your sin. And He forgives you of your sin so that you maintain, you see, the breastplate of righteousness. Now, if you're living in rebellion against God, maybe you've got a, some secret sin that you're, you're involved in over here, then you don't have a good breastplate. Like, Satan's going to make He's going to make all kinds of traffic out of that. He's going to pull you down because you're not walking with the Lord at that point. See, Job was not perfect. Of course not. But he was living a righteous life as a believer who was looking to the Lord for cleansing. Remember how we're told that he, he regularly did that. If you rest in Christ and maintain a good conscience, then you will enjoy fellowship with the Lord and Satan will not be able to reach you with his accusations. They will be prevented by the breastplate of righteousness. 
The next piece of armor is our boots. It says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. What do they do with their feet? They go around making peace. That's what Christians are supposed to do. We're we're peacemakers. We go around sowing the seeds of peace and the gospel wherever we go because we love peace. We say shalom to one another. We urge others to be reconciled to God, to have peace with God, who are enemies with God. What a joy it is when those that they minister to, that those who have the gospel, these, these shoes, respond and come to Christ. But even when they don't, the Lord declares, what does he say? What did he tell his disciples? If you go to a city and they receive you, you, you put my blessing on them. If they receive you, then you know, they receive this blessing. But what do you say if they reject you? What did he say would happen to that blessing? The peace that you pronounce them. He said the peace would return to you. What does that mean? It means that you still get encouraged by the Lord's peace even when they reject it. You still have the blessing of peace and even more so as you go away. God uses their rejection to make you cherish his peace even more than you did before. If they receive it, it also enhances it because then you rejoice that they have come to to also serve the Lord. So those who have this piece of armor, this this armor of uh, the shoes of peace, on them, uh, keep before them what a blessing it is to have peace with God. That's how you wear these shoes. You remember how sweet the gospel is. You consider what your Savior has done, how he has reconciled you to God. They renew their minds in the reality of it. This keeps them from harboring bitterness toward those that have wronged them, and it makes them always ready to extend forgiveness. They are peacemakers because they enjoy peace with God so much that they want others to enjoy it too. I want you to have peace because peace is sweet. When you have it on, when you have the shoes on, Satan can do what he will, but he cannot get you to turn against your enemies and certainly not against your brothers. You're about bringing people into the shalom, the peace and wholeness of God. You spread that love and that peace and you live in that peace when you have these shoes on. Now, if you go away from that and you start harboring bitterness and resentment toward people, you've got a crack in your armor. And Satan's going to capitalize on that. He's going to feed you into that bitterness and lead you into hostility with other people and anger and frustration and all the rest because you're not living in peace. That's why, parents, when you see your children, there's a, there's a hardness. You see the peace is gone from this kid. You come and say, what's wrong? What happened here? Don't, and call them back to the sweet peace, to resting in the Lord, coming back to Him and living in the joy of the Lord and His mercies. That happens to us, doesn't it? We know what it's like. We get, we get all turned out from God. And we, we come back and someone maybe helps us to come back. The next piece of armor is the shield of faith. Verse 16 says, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which we will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, you put the shield on when you rely on God, when you trust in Him to save you, right? That's how we're saved, right? We believe. We come to believe. Uh, you trust in Him also to do what? To keep you and, uh, to what all, and, to, and to do all the things that He has promised concerning you. 
Rather than trusting in your own wisdom and strength, you trust in Him. You look to Him as the only source of blessing and the only source of deliverance. You know how Satan attacks. He makes you think little of God and His blessing and strength. He sets other things before you. What do you do with Jesus? Here is all the glory of the kingdoms of the world. And you want what? You, 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 what's the plan here? You're, you're, you're going to go to the cross and, and, and do what? Well, well, look at these kingdoms. Here's something better for you. Don't, don't you want this? You see, what does faith do? It says, no, serve the Lord and Him only. This is where my, this is where my rest is. This is where I'm trusting God. I'm not trusting something else to give me what only God can give me. Satan does this with deceitful lust. He promises you bliss if you take the bait. You will be happy if you just indulge in this thing that God has forbidden. Indulging in an affair. Eating eating another muffin when you already had too many. I mean, it could be anything. Taking another drink when you already had too many. Engaging in juicy gossip about someone that you kind of envy or resent. That will make you feel better. That will make you feel better about yourself. Giving yourself over to complaining. Compromising in your walk that, so that you won't be criticized. Okay? Or, being too, or you won't be criticized for being too strict about keeping the Lord's day. Nobody does that. Or about taking time to praise God each day. He promises that you will feel better. And that you'll be happy if you follow your own heart, even just a little. He doesn't start out and say, hey, go over here in this violent rebellion. He says, just let's move over a little bit here. This, you'll, it'll be better if you just soften up here in, in, in this way. He's, he says, this, is, this will really help a lot. It'll make you more effective. It'll make you better. It'll make you more content. Just, just listen to what I'm saying and this will all go well. But what happens when you have the shield of faith? You're like Moses. What did Moses do? We're going to be studying about him in Hebrews soon, but we're told there in Hebrews 11 that he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season where he would have had in the palace all the delicacies, all the comforts of the palace, the prestige, all of these things. And, Joseph, and Moses goes out in the wilderness with, for 40 years with a bunch of rebellious people that, that won't listen to him and ends up not even being able to go in the promised land, and Moses was glad for the decision that he made because he believed that his, he had faith in God. This is where my reward is. I'm looking to God. He's the one that's going to deliver my reward, not this world. So you see how this, this shield of faith, Satan can throw all those darts at you. Look at this. Take this. Take that. Take the other. And you say, no. As for me and my house, like Joshua said, we will serve the Lord. See, what does Satan want to do? He wants to lead you to distrust God. To say, God doesn't really care about you. Take this instead. You can see the care over here. You can't see it with God right now. You can see it over here, he says. He also uses trials and sicknesses that go on and on and on. And he says, why are you serving God? You're not getting anything from it. That's what Job's wife said, wasn't it? She said, curse God and die. Look, he's done you wrong. Poverty and affliction. God's not working out for you very well, is he? Things aren't going together very well. 
Yeah, you, you need to trust in something else. You can't trust in God. You need a shield of faith. Quench those fiery darts. But if you have the... And, and then there's the helmet of hope. This is the next one. The, the helmet of salvation. It's closely related to the shield of faith. It is associated with hope in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Hope is important for those who are being persecuted like the Thessalonians were. Your eyes are in your head when you have hope. What do I mean by that? I mean that you're, you're thinking rationally about your hope instead of just going off to this thing and that thing and letting your hope melt away. You know the one that you have believed. And you know that He is able to keep what you have committed to Him against the day of evil. Satan will try to make you discouraged. You're such a failure. Look at the state of the church. Look at all the enemies around you and to God and the gospel and how strong they are. You might as well give up. This isn't going anywhere. There's nothing you can do. He goes on and on with such nonsense in an effort to wear you down. He uses gloating enemies. He uses other Christians who are discouraged and say, oh, it's all over, you know, whatever. He uses your own failings. He says, hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. Look at you. You did it again. What do you, what do you think? There's no hope for you. You need the helmet of salvation. He wants. He wants you to distrust God in the way that I was saying before, that He doesn't care. The same as we saw with faith. But if you have this helmet of hope, you know that your blessing will come. Finally, Paul tells you to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He will do his best, Satan will do, do his best to give you a different sword. What are some of the swords that he gives you? He says, use this sword, it'll be better. You know, check out this sword. Look, look at this. Oh, it's polished up. Look, look at that sword. Oh, you got that old sword over there. That's not working very well. Look, look at this one here. Traditions of men. You, you, you rely on the traditions of men. You'll really make progress then. You rely on priests. You rely on psychology. We saw that before. Oh, there's a book about helping children with their self-esteem. Yeah, let's read that. And then we can learn about how we can, what we, your own wisdom. That's a sword he'll give you. You know what to do. The wisdom of some spiritual guide. Some false minister who adds or takes away from God's word. If he can, he'll put a different sword in your hand. A counterfeit sword that you will use. Thinking that you're advancing God's kingdom. When in fact you're weakening God's kingdom. Want an illustration? Big illustration. An illustration that affected lots and lots and lots and lots of people. Look at King Solomon. Do you know why King Solomon married so many wives? Why did kings do that in those days? That was how they made alliances with other kings. When they married their daughter or that sort of thing, they made an alliance and they, they established a relationship with that king so that they would be committed to protecting each other. I mean, the guy's, the guy's daughter was over in your house. He's not going to come and attack you, right? So Solomon said, look, I'm going to strengthen my kingdom. And he married all these wives. And look at the success. It's really working wonderfully. And what are we told? That that was the very thing that brought him down. It was a counterfeit sword. And so what happened? Those wives, they were serving pagan gods and idols and things like that. 
he'd been paying attention to that. God said plainly in his word that you're not to marry people that are unbelievers that are out of the kingdom. That's what Solomon did. And that was what brought about the ruin. It was a counterfeit sword. And you see, you can make progress with a counterfeit sword. And you can think that things are going great. And it's so fresh and it's so new. But in fact, it brings destruction in the end. We have to rely on God and what He has said. My friends, take the Word of God. Take the sword of the Spirit. Proclaim God's Word to your friends and relations. Expose sin in your life and in the life of others based on what God says. Without being ashamed when the world ridicules it, God's Word is always right. The kingdom will advance through the proclamation of God's Word, not through clever techniques of men. Let fools and idiots twist the gospel however they will, but you take the sword of God's Spirit. Most of all, set Christ forth is the way of salvation. That's the sword that we hold. God has given you His Word. Take this sword and use it. Satan will not be able to hold his ground. God's kingdom will spread into His territory when His Word is proclaimed. If you proclaim something else, if you use another sword, you might gather some friends, but you won't be spreading God's kingdom. You might gather some allies, but it won't be God's kingdom, whatever it might be called both in pulpit and in private conversations, take the sword. Take to your, take, talk to your friends. Bring them to hear God's word. Give them sermons to listen to. Point them to the truth. Some of you have lost your confidence in God's word. And you think that the only way you're going to win people to God is something, some other tool, some other sword. And you rely on that instead of on the word of God. It's amazing to me to see how God's word works I mean, we've seen that so many times in the church where people would come in that did not know the truth. They did not know the Lord. And over a course of maybe even several months, that their eyes are open and they come to see the truth and they come and believe and receive the gospel. Paul concludes by calling you to persevere in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18 to 20. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication, For all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I might I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. What is the way to put the armor on? So it was depending on God. Prayer is the way to put the armor on and to keep it on. I began by telling you that the armor describes different aspects of relying on God. We look to Him for the truth. We pray that we would know the truth and we go to God's Word for the truth. We trust in Him for our righteousness. We ask God to, to keep us pure and to keep us, to, to, that we maintain a, a, a conscience and we deal with our sin. We go to God with, with the, to keeping that shield on. We live in the spread of the gospel of peace. We look at the, um, we maintain that peace and we promote that peace as those whose feet are shod. We trust in Him with faith to see us through. We set our hope upon Him against all conflicting hopes, competing hopes, and we take His Word and we advance His kingdom. Satan wants to separate us from God. He wants to drive that wedge between you and God to make you doubt God, distrust God, to turn your heart to anything, something else. 
Don't let him do it, dear Christian. Keep throwing yourself upon God in the battle for your soul. When you do, Satan and his minions will not be able to hurt you. When you don't, they will have open access, open season. Pray for yourself. Pray for each other. And pray for those who preach the gospel. Spiritual warfare is personal. You must pray for yourself. But it is not merely personal. Spiritual warfare is also corporate. Men, you who have families, you're responsible for your family. You need to pray for your family. You need to lead them. And you bear responsibility for that. All of us bear responsibility for each other. What happens if the kingdom of God does not prosper? Will you prosper by yourself? We need to pray for the church to have this armor and to live in the battle, uh, fight God's battle God's way. Pray for those who lead you. Your wife, child in the home, pray for your husband or father that your family will have God's armor to defend them. And as members of the church, pray that our church will have this arm, armor. We put it on when we unite in prayer that we might stay in the truth, that we might continue in righteousness, that we might proclaim the gospel of peace to the nations, that we might carry the shield of faith, that we might believe what God has said and trust in Him, that we might maintain our hope of salvation, that we might faithfully proclaim His word and the word would increase. That's praying for the armor. That's putting the armor on. Christ will lead us in victory against Satan. He does not do this apart from us, but through us as we actively serve Him. You're told to put the armor on. He doesn't put the armor on you. You put the armor on. Be earnest. Be engaged. Remember, it is a battle for your eternal soul. It is a battle aimed at keeping you and others away from God forever and ever. Put the armor on. It is then that you will be able to stand against the wiles of the devil in the evil day when temptations come in every form from all around you. Please stand and let's call on the name of the Lord indeed. O oh Lord our God, how thankful we are for the armor that you have provided for your people. We would not be able to stand even in a, a light day, much less in an evil day, if we did not have this armor. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to indeed engage ourselves with putting this armor on. That's what we're told to do. And it's not that we go out to the store and buy a, a sword and a shield and stuff, but it's that we come to you, O Lord, and we look that we may be resting in the righteousness of Christ, that we may be maintaining hope in what you have told us, hope in your kingdom and the promise of heaven, that we might be those who are spreading peace, that we might love peace and live in peace, and that we might spread it to those around us. Oh Lord, there's so many aspects of this armor, and you know, there's even, he could have had other things that were on this list, but we thank you, Lord, that that these are given to us to, to help us and to guide us in the way that we need to go. And we pray that we would be found faithful in, uh, in this regard. We know, Lord, that you don't, you, don't, you don't just keep us like you know somebody would keep a hamster or something, but you, you keep us in a way of where we are uh, engaged in the keeping. We're, 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 we're supposed to put up the armor. We're supposed to put on the armor. And, and when we don't do that, then it will have consequences. Thank you, Lord, that 
that you have made it that way. And we pray that we would learn to, to truly trust you, Lord, as we go forward and that you would help us, Lord, to, to walk with you and to serve you. Father, we do pray overall for the battle. We know that Satan is an enemy that is going to be defeated. We know that his rebellion is going to be brought down. You have said so. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that your kingdom would come, that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed, that we would be brought into the kingdom of grace and we would be kept in it. And we pray that we would be able to lead others into that kingdom, for that your gospel would advance. And we pray, Lord, that the day will, will hasten when our Lord Jesus Christ comes and when he puts Satan and all who are in league with him into the place that they belong, into the pit of where they will be forever and ever. Father, we pray that we would serve the Lord, that we would know you, that we would trust you, that we would walk with you. For you are our God, and you will not fail. Not one thing that you have said will fail. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.